finally, we start the final series tonight. Let me show you the schedule of what we're doing for those nights that we're going to be meeting. Tonight, we're covering what did we do and why, kind of a little bit of a historical retrospective. Next week, we're going to talk about how did we do this. That's kind of a behind the scenes, like how did this happen? How did we do the things that we did? Because most of us have seen Exodus kind of operate, been in it for a long time, but you might want to know, like, behind the scenes, what was going on to make this possible? Uh, when we come back after Easter, we're going to talk about what do we learn along the way in our third week? What lessons did we learn? Then we're going to ask some pretty deep questions. And by the way, tonight, I'm going to invite you to start thinking about those questions in a moment. Uh, you can even write them down, because as always, this series is still meant to be interactive, even though it's going to be kind of like a wrap-up. I want, still want it to be interactive, if at all possible. But I still want you to be able to ask questions and, and, and push back and even make comments if you want. Like, you don't have to even ask questions. You can just make a declaration of something you want to say. It's meant to be interactive all the way to the end. I think some of those questions will be answered in the next couple of weeks. It could be anything, like, who thought of naming it Exodus? You know, like, anything. doesn't matter, right? Was it Tara? I don't even know. There's a debate about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a debate. It's more like a finger pointing. Everybody blames somebody else, right? The name was handed down to us from the predecessor group, and one of the theories behind it was, Young adults are in this desert wilderness period between where they've left and where they're going. And, uh, you know, that kind of resonated, I guess. It sounded almost like somebody thought of it after they thought the name was cool, you know. Uh, But I was talking to Daniel Liu, who had been gone for a while doing his rotations and then came to casino night. And he said to me the next morning, we're having this conversation. He said, you know what? I think Exodus is the perfect name for this group. Because I feel like without Exodus, I would have been wandering in the desert. I didn't even tell him where the name came from, right? And I thought, wow, there's some like profound measure in the name. So anyway, there it is for you. Let's start with the way we start most series. We start almost every series with this question. Why do any series that we've done? Why do a final series? Uh, You might think that if we're going to do a final series, we wouldn't even ask the why question. We would just do it. But I think it's still important. We always say that almost every series we start with, we start with, why would we spend God's time in a series like this? And so here's a couple of answers for you. First, I think God worked in and through this group for almost nine years, and I think we need to spend time just thanking God for what he's done. You know, in the Old Testament, when something significant happened, they built an altar. Uh, They would worship or they would sacrifice upon that altar, but in a way, one of the interesting things was they left the altar standing. When something significant happened, it was almost like somebody was erecting a monument that God did this. So this final series is like that. It's building something a little bit different than maybe the way we do our normal series to say, God did this. So we're going to be kind of looking at things that God has done retrospectively. Second, I think that Exodus kind of left the road most traveled by most groups. We kind of blazed our own path in the way that we did this group from the beginning. Uh, That's been tough. It's made it harder than most because we kind of were building our own template and had to kind of figure out our own way in a lot of ways. But I think we should leave some markers behind since we blazed our own trail in case anybody ever was going to follow. I think there's something to be said about talking about what we did in case somebody else later is crazy enough to try it. Finally, by winding down Exodus in this way, we're kind of celebrating ministry together and we get to perpetuate its ministry. Its legacy is even more important than we perpetuate uh, by doing it right, as opposed to just one day saying, we're done with our last series, let's just fold up the tent and go home. We actually can take a moment to go through this. You know, I was 
writing these down, and the second point about Exodus kind of leaving the road most traveled and going off on its own, that was the one that kind of got me. Like, I've been sort of, you know, pretty even-keeled about the whole thing until I was writing this one, and I realized that once we kind of close our doors, this path really is a unique path. There's not many out there. Uh, just for fun, because, you know, I'm a goober, I, uh, I just Googled the word Christian Interactive Forum just to see if there's anybody else out there. And we were all over the page. Uh, we were everywhere. Uh, but I did find a couple that kind of had something of this kind. And I went page after page after page just, like, looking. Uh, but, you know, that's because I'm, a, like I said, I'm a goober. What's the name of that in? What Yeah. Well, one's in Virginia if you want to move. Uh, the other one's in Austin, Texas, you know, which is, you know, the California of Texas. <laughs> is that right, Soren? Is that, is that the accurate description? Austin. All right, let's dive right in. What did we do and why did we do it? It kind of started like this. Exodus was a group that was already going on. Uh, Some of us were part of it when it was already going on. It's just a regular college and young adult ministry. It was mainly held up by the fact that most of the women in the group wanted to date the guy who was leading it. (laughs) The group was really at its biggest until he announced that he was engaged, and then it just like fell apart overnight. (laughs) And within a short time of engagement, he announced he wanted to become a missionary, and that really just killed off the rest of the group. And I remember there was this remnant of us meeting in the kids' room, because there was nowhere else for us to meet, and we were trying to start a young adult ministry surrounded by, like, cartoon pictures on the walls. And But the most important thing at the time for us in deciding whether we were going to go on or not was this concept ruled in our mind. We needed to avoid duplication. That was like paramount in my mind because you know that if I talk about anything, I talk about stewardship a lot. And stewardship was very important to us. That if we're going to spend the enormous amount of effort that I knew it would take to take this group and actually do something with it, uh, rather than just fold it and say, okay, that didn't work out so good, um, it was to avoid duplication. Lena and I had just been married a few months at this point when we were making this decision. So in a way, Exodus has been in our life almost the entire time we've been married. Um, and probably longer, because even during our engagement and dating, we were already working in Exodus, just hadn't taken over the leadership yet. But as we looked at how we were going to steward this time and effort that it was going to take for me to continue being bivocational and try to minister while I worked as full-time as an attorney, the number one thing was we cannot do the same thing. Not because I don't like the same thing. Uh, just because we could just take people and walk across the street and do the same thing somewhere else. There was no reason to have another group try to do the same thing that every group was doing. There were plenty of fog and light young adult ministries like that. And my first recommendation was, let's join one. But this ragtag group that we were at the time were saying, no, we want to try to do something different. That isn't really the way that I respond to God. Okay, then we got to try to do something different. Avoid duplication. The other thing that was ruling my mind was this thing that I called the devastating 20s. Research that I was reading at the time was saying that if you were a Christian at the age of 20, the chances that you were in the church or even a Christian by the time you were 30 was probably somewhere between 25 and 30%. That the failure rate or the, the mortality rate for young adult Christians at the time was something between 66 and 75%. And that alarmed me. 
Because I had seen that in my own life that was going on with my friends in an earlier generation, but it wasn't that pronounced. It was accelerating. And I thought, well, there's got to be something that we can do. And so we sat around with a group of people and started talking about it, and we came up with the other kind of idea behind Exodus was, let's go deeper. And this kind of was the hallmark of what we were trying to do all the time. And this was the thing that made me have the greatest sleepless nights and the most difficulties on Sundays was knowing that it was better to go deeper, but it wasn't always fun. That the hardest things was driving from my house to here all the time, because half the time I was talking myself out of everything I wanted to say, saying, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody wants to go that deeply into a subject. But this concept of going deeper and later going wider was really important to us for a real important reason, and here's what it is. Of all those people that I saw falling apart in their faith, just like having a crisis and just literally coming undone, so many of them I could identify it was because what they had learned was so basic. And they themselves didn't challenge themselves to go any deeper. They didn't want to know anymore. They were happy with just what's at the surface. And guess what? When tragedy came, when life came, when someone challenged them seriously, because the faith was just at the surface, Whatever it was they were facing just pierced right through. And they were in complete crisis. You know, when something is that shallow and wide, we call it brittle. It's like ice. You stand on it and suddenly you go through because it's so brittle. And I noticed that over and over and over when I would talk to people because what they were repeating back, I could tell, was just not deep enough. Our God is so much deeper than that. But they had chosen, maybe they were just taught, to just keep it at the surface. The most simple formulation just to get by, but later that wasn't good enough when trouble came, when the storm came. Like it was almost like their faith hadn't been built on a rock. Even though we know from Scripture the rock is Jesus. I don't want to make it like Exodus is the rock. But it just was the foundation was really weak. And that's what gave us the idea. What if we had a group that actually tried to go deeper? And to do that, that meant we couldn't just talk about something maybe one Sunday. Maybe it'd have to be two or heaven forbid, four or six or one of our longest series, I think, went to 15 weeks at one point. You know, like I, I've joked that you got to get college credit for going to a group like that because it just kept going on. But there was some part of me that was always wrestling with these ideas. The alternatives are already out there. People are not going to make it in some way. And part of the reason is because we just don't go deep enough. Study after study showed that people just couldn't articulate basic things about their faith. The challenge, they just completely came undone. And I thought, maybe if we took it on a different way, we'd try it. So here's some questions we often get asked, just to kind of answer some right from the start. How did the idea of going interactive first develop? Okay, I know Monique's agitating because some people are like, well, you couldn't keep me quiet. So that was like, that's how it started. I just raised my hand one day. The original idea in Exodus was going to be like this. This was crazy. This goes back to the original. The original idea was I wasn't going to lead the discussions. One person was going to take a part of a series and they were going to present it and I was just going to kind of like be there to resource them, right? We tried that twice. (laughs) And the level of preparation that came in was just so lacking in some ways that when people started asking questions, they fell apart right there. So we thought, okay, maybe we'll change that up a little bit. The second model we tried, you know, iteration two, the second version of this thing was, I'll prepare, 
most of the stuff, but there'll be another person who's on task for that series to prepare the counterpoints, and they'll be challenging, right? So that way they'll keep me honest. That didn't work either because it just wasn't happening. And I realized as we sat there that you just couldn't keep people's hands down from talking, and we thought maybe that's just the answer. Maybe we just throw open the floor. Now, I've got to tell you something about throwing open the floor that's a little bit different. When people talk about an interactive kind of discussion, here's what most people think about. They think about the speaker saying what they want to say and then saying, are there any questions? Or they ask the question. They say, okay, so let's ask this question and then you answer it, right? You, like I'll say, so what do you think John meant when he wrote that in the gospel? Then, yep, nope, yep, nope, nope, yep, nope, 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 yep. That's interactive. That's how most People do it, and I'm not just talking about in church. That's how people do it in a classroom. I mean, even in a classroom, the professor, when they want to do something interactive, they'll take questions once in a while when they're done saying what they want to do, or they'll ask you questions and put you on your toes and make sure you're reading your book or whatever you're doing. Nobody in their right mind says, anytime you want to ask a question or you want to stop the discussion, just raise your hand. Nobody does that. And I thought, yeah, that's crazy. But that's exactly what started happening, and it worked out so much better. Because I've told you repeatedly, what we discovered along the way is if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you, and you have things to say because the Spirit is prompting you to say them, and we're so much poorer when we don't hear them. And I'm not just talking about asking a question at the end. I'm not just talking about me asking you a question. I've even found that to be the most true When in the middle of a sentence, I see hands start to go up. Because then I know there's something going on in the room that we would have missed if we had just preached at you. We would have missed had we just asked you some little small group questions. We would have missed if I didn't see all the looks on your faces and all the crazy contorted bodies when we were saying something. You could almost tell when our spirits were struggling, you know, because you could feel it. It started to vibrate in the room, you know. You could feel the tension. And we discovered that almost by accident. The young adult pastor of another church and I had lunch one time when he was talking about this model, and he was just flipped out by the whole thing. He just said, I don't understand how you can get the truth out if you're constantly getting interrupted. And I thought, how interesting that is, that you believe that you have the truth exclusively, that there's a group of Christians sitting around who are all being moved by the Holy Spirit at the same time, and somehow the truth resides uniquely in you, that if you could just shut everybody up and you could just say it long enough, then it would be true. And I started to think, but, you know, that is kind of the way most churches run, and I've said in the past very clearly, I believe there should be a pastor who should exhort people and be heard without interruption. But here, this is totally the place. That's how it started. We tried two other models, and very quickly they didn't work, and it took off. In fact, one of the crazy things was the most commented thing about the group, I thought at some point was going to be, wow, this teaching is really deep. That wasn't it. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that was there, but what was really there, the most frequently commented question right from the beginning was, I love that I could just raise my hand and talk back. Here's some things that I think are interesting about where we've been in the why question. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Research Group, and uh, Morgan and I read his book, You Lost Me. Even before I got to this part, Morgan had sent me an email saying, oh, you're going to get to this part, and he says this. It really proves that what we were on, we were on to something, that there was something going on in our ministry. Here's what he says. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. 
He's talking about why people are leaving the church, why young people are falling away from their faith. He says, still, after studying the role of faith communities and families in spiritual formation, I believe that the problem is not only the next generation's short attention span, exhibitionism, or lack of intellectual rigor. Those are all things other people say. That's the reason people are leaving the church. Rather, I think faith communities have not done a good job of creating environments and experiences where students can process their doubts. Our posture towards students and young adults should be more Socratic, more process-oriented, more willing to live with their questions and seek answers together. We need guides who know how to strike a better balance between talking and listening. This book was written in 2011. And I got to this part sometime in 2011 as I was reading this, that word Socratic just hit me. Because that's actually the model we started using so many years before. It's the model we had stumbled upon that we thought worked so well. And here was somebody saying, more groups should be like this. That's why I went Googling. Like Somebody must have read this and thought, right, maybe it will happen more. Even earlier than that, Dan Kimball had written in his book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. He wrote this, virtually the first thing every single person I talk to, and he's talking about people who don't want to be in church or who are not Christians or even Christians who just don't want to be around the church, Every single person I talked to said is that they wish church weren't just a sermon, but a discussion. They uniformly express that they do not want to only sit and listen to a preacher giving a lecture, and it's not because they don't want to learn. They expressed a strong desire to learn the teachings of Jesus and to learn about the Bible. Rather, they feel that they can learn better if they can participate and ask questions. He quotes from one of the interviewees, that was talking about this, this is what one person said to Dan. He said, teaching in the church is totally important. But not just having the pastor beat it into our heads where he, what he personally believes upon a stage, and everyone just has to accept that. I definitely would want to be challenged, but in a way that honors and respects what I believe too. I would want the forum, interesting choice of words, I would want the forum to be able to talk back and discuss what they are saying and ask questions. But in the church I've been to, there isn't an opportunity for this. It is more the pastor or preacher speaking to you, and you just have to sit there and listen. So I've said it's been great that we somehow, through God's providence and his sovereignty, came upon a model that seemed to work for the people that sat here. Now, after a while, we started realizing this is actually pretty good stuff that we're getting on tape, especially because we're getting your comments back. We had to buy recording equipment and do all the stuff that you see around the room so that we could continue to monitor everyone's discussions. And again, all the people that listen to these talks, the thing they comment on the most is, I'm so glad that I can hear the questions and comments and pushback from the people who are responding because that is what is the most interesting thing is to hear my question asked by somebody else. I would say it started as a happy accident that God orchestrated that we did that from the beginning. We only missed one series that we didn't do, actually two. Um, We've captured everything along the way, and that has been great. It's been awesome. But it, it didn't start again. I think like we had some brilliant idea that we must do this. It puts us in a weird position. If in the future there are other interactive forms that spring up all over the place, I wonder if any of them would take the time to do this and record them and edit them. I just would think... Probably not, right? Because I would think if I told somebody, oh, yeah, we have a group of like 20 to 30 people and we record them every week, they would say, why? You're only supposed to record sermons at churches and churches that have 14,000 people or more. You cannot record 25 people. It's not allowed in Christianity. 
Be ashamed of yourself? Yes, in humility, God did that. And somehow it just kept going all the way till now. Yeah, Jordan. I was going to ask why you don't give CDs anymore. Yeah, that's actually this next question. The reason we podcast them was at the beginning, we were just making a few CDs. And then we started going out different places where we'd have a table, we'd talk about Exodus, and we started burning more CDs. And then my computer was getting tired of burning CDs one by one, so we bought a CD burner. So we could burn five CDs at a time. So we were like literally a CD burning factory. And we'd have CD burning parties at one point where we'd make labels and put them on there and burn these things. And at one point, I realized we had burned 2,000 CDs for people in Exodus, for people that are just coming up to me like, hey, I heard you did a series on heaven. I'd love to get those CDs. We'd like run home, burn them, you know, give them CDs, all this stuff. At some point, I realized like this is actually getting expensive and time-consuming, and we live in an age where you can just download it, right? And this was already the case. This has been going on. It says, I don't know why I didn't put these things together. And finally, Ben comes up with the idea and says, maybe what we need is a website. Like, oh, website. (laughs) (laughs) And we can post all the talks on the website. Now, I will say something. Even though we have a website, and you can download all the talks, I will tell you the funny thing is it did have a weird effect, a good effect and a not-so-good effect. The good effect was as soon as we hit the web, that was meant that people other places could hear about it and find it. They could run Google searches like the one I ran, and they would find something, and they would start to listen, and if they liked it, they would check in. That was the good thing that I'll be looking at a little bit more tonight with you. The weird thing was people in the group stopped listening because there's something about your generation that if you hand someone a CD, there's a chance it might go a little further into the actual CD player in the car, especially back then when MP3 players weren't everywhere in every car. Uh, nowadays, it's harder to say something like, go to the website, you hear them like nodding, and you realize that's never happening, right? Like, like oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. Like, uh-huh, okay, right. So one of the weird effects was people in our group stopped listening to them as much. I won't say they don't. I know people do. But as much as when you just handed them a CD saying, hey, you missed two weeks, here's CD one and here's CD two, and you know, go catch up, you do the homework, all right? You'd be lost in the class without it. That was the reason we started podcasting. And from that point, uh, Exodus was discovered by people who are far beyond this room, and that has been one of the greatest ways that Exodus has contributed in this way because people all over the country and in some cases around the world were able to hear the very things we were talking about in this room. Uh, let's talk about those for just a moment. What I want to do for a moment, since we're looking historically at what Exodus has done, is I'm just going to show you the series that we've done. Uh, In total so far, we've done 38 different series. There were a couple that we did at the beginning that we never captured that were just to start the group as we were trying to experiment, figure out our whole method of doing it. But you can sit there for a moment. One of the things you can think of is how many series, how many of these did I attend? These are in chronological order, so at the beginning you might be like, when did we do that? Here's some series that we did in this group. And uh, one of the things I did was, Ben, when he programmed the website, um, he created a log that logs how many times each talk was downloaded. So I've actually included that information because I think some of you have never seen it. And if we're going to kind of celebrate some things about what God has done, you should probably see that. Uh, Of course, the older it is, the longer it's been there for people to download. But here's some series that Exodus has done. I'll just kind of walk through them. The first one we ever did was, how could a loving God send someone to hell? It was like the first one-off talk that we did. 
using our new format. We followed it up with, what will heaven be like in the spring of 2005? Uh, having finished talking about heaven, we next went to, can we still believe in the Bible and believe in science? Spent time together. This was the longest series we ever did. I think it went 15 weeks. I think on the website there's only 10. We cut some things out. Um, where we really were struggling as a group back then with uh, people brought some very good questions about science. Some of them were challenging even within our faith. We had some young earth creationists in our group, and we had some old earth creationists in our group, and people were debating what we were doing, and this really defined our group as somebody who was going to go after this. You know, this is an interesting side point. In Exodus's earlier days, most of our strong challenge in the room came from people who were too literalists in their reading of the Bible. Uh, that sounds strange to some of you because in recent years, most of the people that have brought strong challenge in the group uh, have been like a much more liberal view of the scripture to almost not really a belief in the scripture or God at all. Uh, but our early days, most of the challenge and most of the struggle came from the other spectrum. Uh, and it was a welcome, but uh, it's funny how the, over the time things kind of shifted for us. The next series we did was Sex in the Body of Christ, where we actually tackled uh, what it was about Christians where belief in Jesus seemed to make no impact on their sexual behavior uh, and why that was. And that was kind of a very frank uh, series on that topic. We followed up really quickly with something that was very important to us back then, money in the kingdom of God, uh, and looking at a biblical view of money in all of its cases, savings, materialism, investment, debt, all of those things, and it's been a subject that, you know, we return to over and over in this group. Like, we would do money updates every once in a while, whether through stewardship or just our giving updates at the beginning of the year, because I'm a strong believer that this needs to be a lifelong discipline, and I will never tire of talking about money. Uh, we went through the Lord's Prayer line by line. Uh, if this was the model that Jesus gave us to pray, what is behind each of these lines? Why is it so important that Christians understand each of those different things that he asked us to pray. We spent a small series just on the basic fundamentals of Christianity. Uh, one where we actually talked about what they were, because a couple of people asked us for an evangelistic tool that they could use to just kind of give people some of the basics. And we even had people just responding in the second week uh, to common charges that are made against Christians to hear how Christians would respond and get a hearing that way. Uh, back when we were doing this, The Da Vinci Code was one of the hottest books around. In fact, it was the highest selling fiction book ever created a huge controversy and a lot of questions in the church about the integrity of our scriptures and just the historicity of the Christian canon and the story of Jesus and the resurrection. So we spent some time uh, responding to that even before the movie came out as we all kind of read the book and responded to it. It was a big topic back then. Uh, we followed up with a series on the messianic prophecies and how the prophecies in scripture uniquely point to Christ. Just looking at the odds of how, how crazy it would be that so many prophecies could have accurately predicted the Messiah to the detail they did. Uh, that was a series we did together. And then dove into one of our easiest series ever, trying to understand the Trinity. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and at the time, really spent good time. If you remember, Ben Tyler was part of the group at that time, and he was doing his master's in theology here at APU, and we were going back and forth as he was doing a class dealing with the Trinity, and we were doing a subject at the same time on what is it that we can understand, but more importantly, how do we worship a triune God and not separate him into three parts or only worship one person of God that we're more comfortable with? We did a series on spiritual warfare. Right now, our most downloaded talk ever is the first talk of spiritual warfare. 
Don't know why that's the, the highest one, but that's uh, a talk we did all the way back in the fall of 2006. A series we never captured on, on CD uh, because of copyright issues was the one we did, Questions Without Answers, where we looked at secular lyrics that search for God. And we would just sit in a room and listen to the lyrics, and we'd just watch them on a screen and listen to the music, and we would talk about what are people searching for? What are they doing? What's going on in this song? Why, why are the lyrics uh, so profound, and, and what would we say in response? That was a pretty good series that led us in discussion about what is going on in the secular culture. The parables. We went through the parables for about eight weeks, followed by a series on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we had a series on all the hot topics that were facing Christianity at the time that we called Examine Your Vision, uh, that was really looking at how we kind of, uh, kind of miss the point one sometimes when we're analyzing some of these things. And we followed a couple of books, uh, including Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren, who wrote Adventures in Missing the Point. A uh, pretty interesting book to follow along. We did a series on spiritual gifts in the summer of 2007. The group was kind of like growing and building new life at this point. We were looking for people to discern their spiritual gifts, went through that, followed by one of our um, most talked about series that we keep returning to, The Mystery of God's Will, and really taking apart the different aspects of God's will. And is there a personal will for your life, but certainly trying to understand what is God's sovereign will and what is God's moral will. You might remember How to Ruin Your Life by 40. Uh, based on the book by Steve Farrar that we did. Uh, one of the few talks we ever lost right in the middle of that series, the one on marriage. I guess it just says something about it right there, you know. <laughs> but that series, actually, a lot of people talked about for a while. Probably the, the most impactful series scripture-wise is the series on the Gospel of Matthew. It spanned 44 weeks. That series, we split up into five pieces. In the spring of 2008, fall of 2008, summer 2009, spring of 2010, and the summer of 2010, to make it through a line-by-line reading of the book of Matthew. Uh, I think Morgan has called it an audio commentary on the book of Matthew. I mean, of course, we were relying on scholarly commentaries, but the commentary in the room, the questions that were being asked, uh, the detail that we were trying to go into, uh, has made this really uh, probably one of my favorite series. Uh, How Non-Christians View Christianity. Uh, was a strong series that we did that uh, got a lot of attention. I think it got us thinking about what's going on. And then that summer of 2008, we did beliefs of major world religions, including the, one of the only discussions that we've had. We sat down with a Mormon theologian and had two sessions that was really impactful for me. Uh, very cool. That was one of the best nights. So when I, my biggest regret is that we didn't go to sessions three and four because we kept talking that night as we went to Legends. And I wish we had recorded that conversation because by the end... I actually almost started thinking someday we might all rejoin as one church. It was an amazing discussion uh, at the end of that series. What is biblical justice we did in the fall of 2008? And then we started the following year with spiritual disciplines and spiritual transformation. Uh, We did that series. Now some of you are like, oh, I remember some of these series. Questions about prayer. We just took everyone's questions about prayer and analyzed them and responded to them and tried to wrestle together a very difficult series. You guys had really strong questions about God's answering prayer and, of course, not answering prayer. And that led us to one of our most difficult series ever, which is probably the most difficult question that most people ask. How does God allow suffering and evil? Why does he allow it? Um, Which took place in the fall of 2009. We did a stewardship update to our money series. And then we began in the spring with examining evangelism and spent time looking at methods of evangelism and which ones worked which ones 
uh, were the ones that we thought we could support? Which ones were we doing? Kind of asking personal questions. And then a long series that spanned the spring and the summer of 2010 on the origin of the scriptures uh, that involved a lot of thinking from different ends of the spectrum about what are scriptures, where do they come from, how reliable are they, what about inerrancy, what about infallibility. And we had the great chance to watch the display that was going on here at APU as they were hosting uh, the big exhibition on different aspects of the Bible with the different, uh, different codexes that they had at the time. Some of you recall how Christians relate to culture and society. Some of you have commented that you really enjoyed that series as we went through it, talking about, and it seems like it relates a lot to the series we just finished, um, but we were really looking at where should our place be and how do we relate uh, in politics, in culture, and answering that real age-old question with, can we really change the world as so many of our organizations claim? For the rest of the fall of 2010 and the spring of 2011, we went through the book of Ephesians. Again, line by line. It took us 16 weeks to go line by line through a book that has six chapters and covers like seven pages in most of your Bibles. You know? <laughs> I think a personal favorite for me was recovering Christian hospitality. Something that Lena and I have tried very hard to do in this group is to model that. And we really got to talk about it and talk about its importance to Christians. And I really think that having lost this hospitality idea. We really are the poorer for it in Christianity because of it. I think many of us don't realize that the gospel spread because of hospitality. Uh, It's what allowed the gospel to spread. And having lost hospitality, we wonder why our efforts are not so good at getting the gospel out anymore. We try to build community without hospitality. Uh, We don't understand it. Uh, we've, We've tried to replace it with other things. It doesn't work. In the summer of 2011, a hot summer In a very difficult time, we spent time going through the Christian views on hell. Uh, Some of you right now are like remembering that series, but I think if you go back and you listen to it, probably the most coherent, without a bunch of talking heads yelling at each other about hell, uh, way to understand different views, even if you're troubled by the doctrine of hell, you'll see that we treated fairly all the different ways that Christians look at hell. When we started in 2011 in the fall, we started with hearing God. Uh, a series that I think surprised a lot of us because so many people in the room supported the idea uh, that we can hear from God and we, uh, that some of you reported that you still do. And that was a very deeply personal uh, way of looking at it. Um, purpose of the local church. We followed that up with a series where most of you have been asking, like, why should I belong to a church? Isn't Exodus enough? Well, clearly at the end of this series, it won't <laughs> be anymore. That excuse will be taken away from you. But I believe that we made a very strong case for why no matter what kind of groups you belong to, no matter who, what kind of Christians you hang out with, the local church really is the primary place that we're supposed to be plugging in. Uh, I think we made that case. Uh, go back, and if you disagree with me, go back and listen to it and tell me if you don't come away with uh, your mind changed a little bit. In the spring of 2012, we started with troubling images of God in the Old Testament uh, and really took on something that I thought we'd been kind of cowering away from sometimes. People would bring up tough questions about the Old Testament. I think we took on a lot of them uh, head-on in that series. Uh, And I think that was, for me, a great way to uh, at least respond to a lot of misnomers that I hear about how God is in the Old Testament. Uh, From your comments, it sounded like you agreed with some of those. But again, a very important series that I hope will continue on. Uh, Other people get to listen to because it's, it's often one of those things that people charge against God, but they know so little about what they're saying. They're just using it as a charge. Idols, if we're going to charge other people and say, hey, God was acting fairly towards people who committed idolatry in the Old Testament, 
we looked at our own idols in modern day times. Uh, that was the last uh, series that we did last year before we broke. And this last year, this whole academic year, we started with the power of the Holy Spirit. As you know, it was recently posted, just about, I don't know, two months ago maybe, and it prompted our friend Mike from Seattle to drive down here and come talk to us about it. Salvation. We spent the rest of last fall taking on a topic I would say we kind of stayed away from as long as we could. People had repeatedly asked difficult questions about salvation, and I kind of stayed away from digging deeper into this because I knew this was something that sounds simple, but the more you talk about it, the more complicated it gets. Now, there's a reason for hundreds of years people have discussed salvation and not come to terms, even among very well-intentioned, well-believing Christians. And we saw why. Uh, When we were done with the series, I think people were like, okay, so is there going to be a resolution? It's like, well, I don't know that Exodus will have resolved it if 500 years of discussion has not resolved it yet. But at least we know what they're talking about. And it helped us see God in a much larger way. Our last series was Taking Your Faith Private. I hope you get an idea of not just what we've done, the breadth of the series we've done, but also that people out there are listening to the stuff that we did in here, uh, which is, blows my mind. We will live on in that way for a long time to come. Your questions, every time you ask them, will be asked over and over and over and over again over the Internet for somebody else who needs to hear that question and needs to hear the answer that might come about or the comment that you make. Those are all what's going on out there. Yes? Do you have the PowerPoints up too or just the audio? We don't have the PowerPoints. We like to post all the PowerPoints. There are older talks that I'd like to update the audio, and I'd like to post all the books we use, because we get asked that a lot by people who write in, so that people can read on their own, which sometimes may even be better. Sometimes people just need to read the book. And if I, if I really had my druthers, which we started to do, but it was just too big of a task, if I really could do it, we would add the written transcript. Okay. Just a couple more things real fast. What else did we do, other than all of our Sunday night stuff? Wednesdays. We started Wednesdays in 2007. Wednesdays for us, Lena and I, were a chance to model hospitality, to open up our home, and to do something that's very intimate, which is to cook and to allow people into your house. Because we felt that Sundays, no matter how much I believed in going deeper and really challenging people, yeah, it could tend to feel intellectual. It could tend to be just up there, even though I knew that working on the way you understood would deepen your heart and would also make you stand against the storm when it came. It would exercise muscles that I don't think most Christians used. But we needed the other parts too, and that's what Wednesdays were supposed to be for. We tried a couple things to get it right. Uh, The food seemed to be good from the beginning, but we were trying to figure out the small group things, how to do it. I'm thankful for Morgan, who really came along at that time to do an internship with his MDiv and really helped us to deepen Wednesdays to make them not just meaningful, not just something that you're going to get something out of, but to actually make them so much a part of the group that it sounds like at this point it was hard for me to imagine having Exodus on Sundays without Wednesdays. There was familiarity with one another. There was intimacy going on, not just community. That's too much of a buzzword for me. Uh, There was a chance to actually eat together, sit together, and pray together, and do those kinds of things. Even have smaller groups where people could talk uh, where I wasn't involved and I wasn't leading a discussion where you could do that on your own. And there was a number of leaders that have been in this group that have led those groups, but Morgan really played a big key in always providing the content for all of these years 
to make sure that there was something for us to focus on on Wednesdays. Uh, sacrificial giving, I already talked about money, I don't need to say any more, but I wanted to leave that behind as something like if nothing else comes out of this uh, for you personally, that you would walk out of Exodus being somebody who's going to spend your life trying to make more and give more. Make more doesn't mean money. It could be make more with the life that God's given you in stewardship, but that you will give more money. You will find a way to do that, that you will give sacrificially. So I wanted to model that. I wanted to give us opportunities. We took all the money we ever made in this group and we gave it away. We didn't use any of it for Exodus. Um, because it wasn't the idea just that, you know, those people need money. It was the idea that we need to learn how to give. Make it a discipline that lives on way after this group is done. I hope that that works. If not, you got five more weeks back there to make it stick. Just practice a little bit harder. It'll stick. And serving together. We used to serve in the homeless ministry that New Song had. We served at Door of Hope in Pasadena together. We found different service projects along the way because I felt like somewhere, if you could put all these things together, we could become much, much better followers of Jesus Christ. If you could put together really reforming our minds, the formation of our minds so that we could really be transformed by renewing and forming those minds, by also living in hospitality and intimacy, serving together and giving generously, then I think we could actually open ourselves up to becoming better followers of Christ. In the coming weeks, we'll talk more about how that worked. Next week, we're actually going to talk about how did we do it? How did we actually do Exodus um, and do a behind-the-scenes look? And one of the reasons I'm doing that is not just because I think it would be interesting for you to know what went into it, but as we kind of build a marker for others who might want to follow Maybe they'd like to know what we did, since so few are doing it. Someday they may want to do this, uh, and that would be a way for them to follow. We actually just state some of the things that we did. The week after that, we'll talk about some of the things we learned in doing this, some of the things we would maybe do differently, some of the things that, uh, that we would want somebody else to know to steer away from. Let's pray and thank God for what he's given us so far. Lord, our first declaration is that you did this. For every person that put in time and every person that worked, took on responsibility, put in time and effort, I thank you. But I know that all things come from your hand, and that we only give back to you what already belongs to you. Whether that was the time invested, whether that was the brain power in this group, whether it was the physical hands to set things up, whether it was the money that was given, uh, Lord, even the hearts that were shared, all of those things ultimately come from you. Lord, I ask that you bless this altar that we've just set up. As we look back at all the things that have happened, we say again, you did these things, and tonight we mark that by putting up this altar and saying, Lord, it's all for you because it's all from you. I pray this in your name. Amen.